The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, episode eight. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for taking the time to listen today. The goal of our podcast is to help our listeners expand their opera knowledge, and our content is always drawn from live events, classes, and lectures that we run throughout the opera season here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode features an engaging interview with a mezzo-soprano turned soprano who just celebrated the 50th anniversary of her Met debut, Grace Bumbry. In the interview, hosted by the Met Guild's Executive Director of Program Development, Paul Gruber, Miss Bumbry talks about some of the challenges and triumphs she experienced throughout her career that includes over 200 Met performances and countless operatic appearances and recitals around the world. Some of my favorite highlights from the interview are when she discusses the challenges she faced as a young black singer in a segregated America, as well as being cast by Richard Wagner's grandson as the first black singer to perform at the Bayreuth Festival. Needless to say, we are very happy to present this interview to you, as it is a valuable insight for aspiring singers, historians, and opera lovers alike. Please enjoy Musical Chairs with Grace Bumbry. Hello, good evening. Good evening, good evening. Hi. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. It's great to see such a great crowd here for Miss Bumbry. And thank you so much for extending your stay. Um, I thought I'd start out by saying that, um, as probably most of you know, we had a very special day on Friday when we celebrated the 50th anniversaries of the Met debuts of Grace Bumbry, I'm gonna do it in alphabetical order, Grace Bumbry, Mirella Franey, Cheryl Milnes, and Renata Scotto at the Guild Luncheon. Um, and Placido Domingo sang, in fact, he sang tenor arias for the first time in some time. And how were they done? They were done beautifully, but they, and they were written for tenor. <laughs> Do you want to say transposed. Slightly transposed. <laughs> we, I mean, I didn't ask what key they were But they in, were beautiful. But they, they were, were beautiful, beautiful and the sound of his voice was magnificent. That's all you want. And James Levine spoke. And you were reunited with um, a pretty good contingent. Yes. It was wonderful to see so many of the singers with, with whom I've sung, and especially um, um, Lucina Mara. I was really pleased to see her, and uh, of course Martina, uh, with whom you know I made my my debut pretty much the same time uh, Martina did. But she was a little you know, she was a little bit before me, I think, because she sang here. She and, sang and here, in, but in you in New York before I did. But I you actually that. appeared on the Met stage um, at the same time, because you were both National Council auditions winner in the same year in 1958. Yes, yes, that's what it was. It's a long time ago, so my memory, 
my memory doesn't serve me too well it's, all the it's, time. It's relative. And Marilyn Horn was there. Marilyn Horn was there. Teresa Stratus. Teresa Stratus. There was uh, uh, Grunheber and um, Jimmy Levine, of course. I was very pleased to, to see Jimmy. I hadn't seen him since he became so ill, but it was good to see him and, and that he was there. It was very important for me that, that he made the effort to be there. And um, to hear also Placido singing in beautiful voice, no matter what key they were, they were sung. <laughs> beautiful voice. I mean, that's all that matters, really, isn't right. it? Yeah. And I, I, I particularly liked it because he has done or is doing what I always did, you know. I sang mezzo and I sang soprano. He sang tenor, now he's singing baritone. Uh, and I, I, I always felt that what you have to do in, uh, with your voice is to use all of your voice, not just a portion of it. And he's doing that. And, and, and for me, it was like underlining uh, what I had done. And, and so it shows you that my lead was correct. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go back a little bit um, to, because we like to do that in this series, um, to your early days, born in St. Louis, and you're the daughter of Benjamin Melzia, and Melzia. Or Melzia and Benjamin, I was yeah. going to say. Um, and he was um, a railroad freight handler, I've read. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. And she was correct. a school teacher. Yes. Um, and they both sang in the church choir? My mother sang in the senior choir. My father sang in the gospel chorus, which sang on, on Sunday evenings. Um, my brothers and I sang in uh, the youth choir. And uh, you know, the, the Methodist Church, uh, which is now the United Methodist Church, is a, is, um, a, a very forward-thinking church, at least ours was. And uh, we did a lot of, um, of hymns, anthems, cantatas, um, requiems, um, whereas the gospel chorus sang gospel music. So we, we had everything. And the, the wonderful thing about that church for me was we had, we had a, a, a fabulous pipe organ. Mm. And the, the organist played it so beautifully. I remember the, the, the piece of music that I most remembered was um, as Bach's Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was for me, I was like in another world. And you'd hear this music coming out of that pipe organ, and I always waited for it. And I think that was the beginning of my interest in classical music. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. If it, that, and you started piano lessons pretty early at seven. At seven, yeah. 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 Uh, because of my mom. Yeah, and she insisted that, mind you, my brother Benjamin started them also, but he soon stopped. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I decided, no, I'm, uh, I want to learn piano, how to play the piano. And I'm so glad that I did, because I can certainly play for myself uh, to learn my music. But I have a system, I have a system. What I do is I, I, I sit down and I learn the music first. Then I, I go to, well, I bring somebody, somebody comes to me, a pianist who checks me out to see if I have everything learned properly. And then I go to a, a, an even more advanced pianist so I can work on the interpretation. But you've always been a quick study, haven't you? Yeah, what that's got to do with it. Yeah. That's nothing to do with it. Yeah. I finish, I, I learn the music, but I, you know, you, 
you, you learn a piece of music, but that doesn't mean that you really know it. You have to work on it and work on it and work on it until it becomes second nature. Yeah. And otherwise, you, you get stuck trying to find um, how, how to do something with your voice on stage, which you, you should have already done in the, in the, in the studio, mm -hmm. in, your, in your piano room or in your piano rehearsal. I, my thing was always to come to the, to the, um, the musical rehearsal in, in every opera house ready, ready so that I don't have to waste any time, the, 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 the conductor doesn't have to worry about me, um, the stage director, neither. It's, 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 all, well, it's, it's all a thing of taking your profession uh, seriously. But I thought most professional singers did that. Was that not the no, case? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. No. Well, there's some who, who didn't, yeah. Right, I won't ask who. No. <laughs> um, about the same time as starting piano lessons, you also were taken to see a singer who really did influence you. Oh, yes, Marian Anderson. Yeah. 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 As a matter of fact, uh, I really wanted to become a, a recitalist and because of Marian Anderson. That's what I saw. I saw Marian Anderson and that she was my role model uh, until I was um, studying with Lotte Lehmann. And Lotte Lehmann insisted that I take uh, that I take the opera classes, and I'm so glad she did because, well, you know the reason why. My my <laughs> life changed, uh, but you know to sing re recital music is pretty much the same as singing opera because you have little vignettes of music mm -hmm. with the little dramas. You do the same thing in opera on a larger scale. The other thing that said that was interesting was um, at seventeen, you won a contest. Yeah. Do you want to you tell mean the us Arthur about Godfrey? that? Well, it was before the Arthur Godfrey. You, Arthur Godfrey. Oh, 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 oh! You mean the the St. Louis, Louis Institute of Music? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I won a contest in St. Louis, um, which was a twenty-week concert uh, concert uh, contest of all the schools, all the high schools in St. Louis. And um, I was the, the winner of that contest. And I think the radio station, CBS radio station, was rather embarrassed that the St. Louis Institute of Music refused me entry in there as a full-time student. Which was the prize, right? The that was one of the prizes. I had four prizes. Uh -huh. And one, one of the prizes was the one we're talking about plus uh, a trip to New York, um, a $1,000 war bond, and, um, oh, yeah, uh, $1,000 for um, uh, wardrobe. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Institute of Music, um, they, had their, they, they had their rules, and um, they did not want to have a black student in their student body. And my mother and father and my voice teacher and I went to them and, uh, and said, well, I'm sorry, my mother said at least, I'm sorry, but we cannot accept your offer to, to teach our daughter uh, as only a private student. Either she comes as a full-time student or not at all. And, well, they made a big fuss and this is our school and blah, 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 blah. My mother says, yes, but this is my daughter. So we thank you very much. We took up our little coats and our hats and we, and we left. And on the heels of that, 
the, the CBS person, the manager of the station in St. Louis, figured that since I was going to go to New York anyway, he would arrange for me a, a, um, an audition for the Arthur Godfrey show. And um, he did. The, an audition does not mean that you're in, automatically in, uh, but I was, I was chosen as a winner. And uh, so the rest of the rest of it has been ah. Well, there you are at the Waldorf Astoria where you were on Friday with your mother, but here you are making Arthur Godfrey cry <laughs> by singing Odan Fatale. Yeah, seventeen years old. Yeah, <laughs> that was my war horse. The Odan Fatale was my war horse. Wherever I had to sing something, I sang Odan Fatale because it showed the whole voice and the drama. Well, we're also going to hear that in a moment. Not um, from them. Got, no, <laughs> no, I would love to find that, you know, somewhere. Mind you, I do have it. You do? Yes, wow. yes, for sure. Well, you didn't share that with me earlier. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. But, as, um, as I have also a recording uh, that Marian Anderson made for me to um, publicize my concert in St. Louis. I have it on vinyl. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hope you have that transferred someday. Yeah. Um, so that led, though, to you, first of all, getting scholarship offers. Yes. Uh, from, among other places, Boston University, which you attended for maybe a semester or a year. A year. And then transferred to Northwestern yeah. University. Yeah. And then you met someone who I met Lotte Lehmann. had a great influence on your yeah. life and your work. Yes, she did. As a matter of fact, as I said before, she, it was she who insisted that I take the, the opera classes. And it was, it was not easy because she was quite a taskmaster and, she, and relentless, as a matter of fact. And I remember for about six months, we were working on Aida Amneris duet. And um, I, I found it difficult to make those larger-than-life movements. It, it, it was impossible. And I mean, I could feel it in, in the inside. I, and the words were wonderful, and I could feel all those words, but I, I couldn't see myself with my hands way out there, stretched out there, that kind of movement, like that, with very demanding, commanding movements. And um, then one, one day, she had decided, she put in her head, that this is, this is going to be Grace's uh, breakthrough. That was in her head. And she kept insisting, kept insisting. I, I, I couldn't do it. She kept insisting. I couldn't do it. She kept insisting. I couldn't do it. So then finally I started crying. And her, her, her friend and companion, Dr. Holden, finally stopped her and said, Lotta, leave her alone. Can't you see that? She's to totally distraught. So I left, and I went to, my, to the, the, the house where I was living in Santa Barbara. And uh, I was walking up and down the hallway in the house, talking to myself, and then, blah, and I said, Grace, how can you be so stupid? You know, blah, that kind of thing, and I was, blah, gyrating. And then I, I, there was a mirror. <laughs> I saw them. Suddenly, there was an epiphany. I realized what it was that I needed to do, to forget about Grace. The, the emotions were what we were after, the emotions, how to express the emotions that were there, whether it's fury or, or, or sadness or happiness or whatever. Forget about grace. Grace is not important. The person that you are impersonating is what's important. 
And, and, and from, from that, from that experience, I realized what it was that I needed. I needed to think about the music, only the music. The music, the words, and, and it's not just the notes that I had to sing. There's also the rests. The rests are important. And, I, and, and I'm saying this because of my debut that I made at the Paris Opera, 1960. Lotta said that I was a terrible actress. Terrible actress. But I somehow made up for it because of this, this breakthrough experience with her. When I went to Paris, I had never been on the stage, never been on the opera stage, but I had a good imagination, and I had, had, we had worked on the Aida Amneris second act, and, and the thing was, I had to work out the judgment scene, which is the most difficult scene for Amneris in the, in the opera, the most difficult, if not in all of the mezzo, mezzo repertoire. It's, it's so difficult because you're on the stage by yourself most of that act, most of that scene. You have, the, the, you have Radames who comes in, you bring him in, then he leaves. Then comes the, 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 the ministry, the, the ministers of, 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 of death. Then they leave, and they go down to the, to the lower chamber. I'm on the stage by myself. I've got to fill out that music. I've got to fill out so that the audience realizes what's going on. And it's got to be interesting. So for me, thank God for my piano lessons, I, I, I knew what it, what it meant, what it meant for timing. Uh, I knew what, what the text was about. And I knew what drama was about because of, uh, because of Lotte Lehmann and how to express that drama. And I tell you, after that judgment scene, my, my opening night there in Paris, I got eight solo curtain calls. Eight. Now, anybody who goes to opera knows what that means, <laughs> a solo curtain call. I mean, that's saying nothing about the rest of the cast. So, and, and nobody would believe that this 23-year-old girl who's never been on the stage before could have, first of all, such a powerful voice. I'm, I'm quoting what they said. I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm not pat, patting on my, myself on the back. But this is what they said, that she, supposedly 22, 23 years of age, never been on the operatic stage, how, how could she have this powerful voice and this command of, of, uh, of, of drama? And it's all because of that breakthrough with that epiphany. You once said in an interview, you were in a documentary called Visudarte. And yeah. You, and yeah. you once said, you were asked about the problems of being a black opera singer. And you said, the problem about being a black opera singer is not opportunity. It's dealing with the people who knew you growing up. Do you remember saying that? Yeah, you, I, I, I don't remember having said that in that occasion, but yeah. Yeah. It's because, an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah because, you know, uh, you have your, your friends, your school chums, who know you as Little Grace that you saw at the beginning of this documentary. And after a, a bit of study, they, you are, you're a different person. You're not that same person any longer. Yeah. You, get, you can't possibly be because you are working in a, in a different area, in a different medium, and sometimes they, 
they misunderstand. They think that, oh, she's got all this highfalutin um, airs, and she speaks all these languages, and, and we're not good enough for her, or whatever. That's, but that's in their minds. Mm -hmm. and, but the, the problem is that you don't really have much in common anymore, mm -hmm. because your, your, your paths have gone different directions. And some of them still, you, you might have some who are, who are mu musicians, and you have um, a rapport with them. Uh, but in St. Louis, there were not a bulk of, uh, of uh, opera singers there. Uh, no, so. Um, after the Omneris, another thing you did in Paris was, I believe, your first Carmen? Yes. Yeah. And uh, yes. again, out of an interview, you made this statement that Carmen's the same sickness for the black mezzo that Aida is for the black soprano. And if you've got a nice figure, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was back then. That was back then. That's certainly 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah. people have advanced um, in enormously since then. But yeah, at that time, as a matter of fact, when I auditioned at the Paris Opera, I was offered Aida, Salome, and um, Leonora Pantrovatore. Those are what they wanted me to sing. And I, I insisted, no, I want to sing Amneris. You won't believe it. I, mean, I see in your face it's incre incredulous. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I insisted that I want to sing Amneris. And he couldn't understand why. No, we, wa we want you to sing this, these, these, uh, these three operas. I said, no, no. No, I was very adamant in my position because I already had at least uh, something to work with. I had worked with Lehman on that, that duet between mm -hmm. Am, uh, Amneris and Aida, and I knew what I could do with that. that. If I had taken on the Aida, I would have had to restudy everything that I had learned mm -hmm. because the, the, the role of Amneris is much more demanding than Aida is. Mm -hmm. It's much more dramatic than Aida. So which means I would have to take my, the, the approach would be, be totally different. Mm -hmm. And you know, you start with, with what you have. You don't suddenly drop everything and, and pick up something new. This is what I tell my students also about, uh, uh, about um, their lessons, their auditions. You don't pick up, learn a, a new piece of music shortly before an audition. You learn something, you work on it, you work on it, you work on it, you work on it, and then you present it. But not, the, not, at, the, not at the last minute learning something new. And so that's, that's what, what happened to me. I think uh, that, um, I'm quite candidly, I don't really know how I had the nerve to do that, to, you know, to, uh, a little nobody, a little nobody telling the manager of an opera house, Paris Opera, that, no, I'm gonna, I, want to sing, I want to sing this, I want to sing this. And I, but I think it had to do with the fact that the audition was, was, uh, was um, arranged through Jacqueline Kennedy. So I knew I had, I think in the back of my mind, I th think I felt comfortable in my position mm -hmm. as I analyze it at these days. At that point, had you sung at the White House? I know no. you sang at the, no. that was later. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're going to watch the first video clip now. That's how I brought us up to Carmen. Uh, which is Carmen. It's, a, it's later. This is 1967. And this is a film that was actually directed by Herbert von Karajan. Um, 
as well as conducted by him. So this is the Segadia from Carmen.
Um, but but I've, what I found, and I must say this, is that I found the tempo very slow. Maestro and I had really quite some arguments about the habanera, about the seguidilla, because he had, his concept was the slow tempo. I mean, it, it looks good, it, it, but I just felt that uh, Spanish gypsy would not do it that, that, that slow tempo. And a bit more, a bit more fire. But he was a conductor. I mean, I fought, I fought, I fought, but to no avail. But I think his concept, I, I see now that his concept was a more sultry one, not the concept of, of fire. The, but some of the reviewers said that it was, his, his, his idea was more, was more French, and mine was more Mary May, you know, the, 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 the writer of the, of, the op, of, the, of the story. So I think it works, but I think it would have been better a bit faster, both the habanera and the spaghetti. But I think you make it work because you sing it lightly. You're singing it to his tempo, but you're singing very lightly. Well, so it never that, seems well, ponderous. I, I, never, I, never saw, I never saw Carmen as a heavy voice. Yeah. I never did. And I, I just don't like it as a heavy, dark voice. Yeah. Yeah, She's young. Yeah. She's young. Yeah. We should talk about the Black Venus. Yeah. Um, because that really was a situation that gave you enormous international recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether you want to tell the story or lead me into it. Well, I'll let you lead but it. But you, um, you met with uh, Wolfgang Savalisch. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, who uh, recommended that you sing for Wieland Wagner. Okay, part of in, Bay in Bayreuth. Yeah. I was invited to audition for Carmen in Cologne, Germany for Maestro Savalisch. So I went to Cologne. Of course, I didn't vocalize very high because Carmen is not very high. So uh, I sang the Carmen, and before I got a chance to finish, she asked me, would I sing something, in a, something higher? And I thought, well, maestro, I don't know why we need something higher. Carmen doesn't have anything higher. But I have an idea, he says. Okay. So I asked him, give me time, give me another 15 minutes to go and vocalize higher, and then I, I'd be delighted. So which is, like, which is what he offered me, and I did. So I offered. Odon fatale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was on the strength of the Odon fatale that I was then asked would I go to Bayreuth to audition for Wieland Wagner. And um, which is what I did. And well, the rest I think you all know. So then you became the first African American singer to sing at the Bayreuth Festival. That's correct. As Venus. But this became a huge controversy in Germany, the fact that Wagner cast you. Yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge controversy before I sang. Right. Every, everybody, I mean, all the newspapers and magazines and what, what have you, there were, there were people terribly, terribly dis, dis, disappointed and disgusted that Wieland had hired a black singer. But he said, his remark was that my, my grandfather uh, did not hire, did not write for. He wrote for vocal he wrote, colors. He did not write for f uh, uh, skin colors. Right. He wrote for vocal colors. 
and her voice is the, is the color that I was looking for. This is what he said himself. And he, he stood by me in all of that, through all of that, uh, all of that hullabaloo. Were you protected to a certain extent from some of the controversy? Did you know everything that was going on? No. Because yeah. evidently they were getting hate mail. And, well, I knew um, that, certainly. But, uh, you know, coming from America, you know, we live in, in, a, in, a, in a, a country that, that, that discriminated. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing new. Yeah. Bayreuth and, and Germany was uh, a continuation. So you knew what you had to do as a black person. I knew that what my job was, my job was to sing this role of Venus I had, that I had been hired for. And evidently, I must be very, must be very good, otherwise he wouldn't have, wouldn't have chosen me. I wasn't the only person to audition. There were about six or seven persons there. Some of the others were Germans. But he had my sound and my person in mind. So I had a job to do. I had a responsibility towards him towards Lotte Lehman, towards my parents, and towards myself. I mean, I knew that what, what I had to do. And did you think of that as, a, as an onerous pressure or just part of, part of what your job was? My job. Yeah. Because you were quite young then, and it was yeah, a but lot you know, of... You, you know, it depends on how you grow up. I mean, if your, if your parents taught you certain, certain values, you don't, you don't leave those values, no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, my mother and father taught, taught, taught us really quite well. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had a responsibility, and uh, I couldn't let them down. And I certainly wasn't going to let myself down. Yeah. This morning you said to me that you thought it was important that we, that we discuss recitals, that your, that your career was really about 50% recitals and 50% opera. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, when I first... When I first um, uh, made that contract with, this, with Saul Hurok for a quarter of a million dollars, I had a lot of recitals to do. And my first recital season was in America, and I had 35 recitals to do. I sang German leader, I sang French um, melody, I sang Italian songs, uh, all because I had studied these with Lotte Lehmann. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had to make a repertoire. I had to build up a repertoire. No matter, no, you, you can't learn the whole repertoire in, in three years. And, um, but I did. And when I got the contract with, with Hurok, I, I put together, I think we did five different programs in, in the States uh, in 35 or 36 recitals. Mm -hmm. And then I had every year, every year, I, I don't think there was ever a year in my whole career that I didn't do some recitals. I like to think that I was like um, a three-pronged singer. I sang recital music, I sang orchestra concerts, and I sang opera. Mm -hmm. And on both sides of the ocean. And I tried to do it 50% on on, in Europe and 50% here. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty good at managing that yeah, most of the time. That's why I didn't have a big, huge, um, uh, operatic repertoire here at the Metropolitan because I had to sing other places. I would like to have sung many, many more things here in, in New York, but um, time just didn't allow it. You cannot be everywhere at the same time. At the same time, I'd love to point out that 
You sang 216 performances at the Met. It's not a lot. Um, it is more performances than either Anamafo. Nagy. Or, yes, Leontine Price. I looked it up. No, Leontine sang certainly more. No, she sang about 201 performances, and you did 216. Um, uh, this is, I, I did a little research after my, we talked. And, okay. <laughs> and, and Anna? Anna sang about as many as Leontine did. Uh, Astrid Varnai. I made a little list somewhere. And um, Renata Scotto? Scotto Moore. Uh, Considerably. Because, yeah. And she lived here full time, though, too. And uh, she was. Uh, well, you know, it depends on what you're offered, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, anyhow, let's get back to these two songs because I don't want to miss them. I'm curious to see which ones you chose. Um, this is from the, I'm pretty sure it's the 70s. Uh, it's uh, now on a DVD called The Art of Grace Bumbry. Um, you're singing with John Newmark on the piano, and they are two Schumann songs. And actually, you don't quite introduce them, but you'll see what they are. From the uh, from the video, and a nice, an interesting contrast too, I think. Stop! <laughs> 
Fifty years ago this fall, you made your Metropolitan Opera debut. Mm -hmm. You'd already made your Chicago debut, so opera debut. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell, you told a story at the luncheon, which I was going to ask you to tell anyhow, because I read it in an interview with you, your Walter Slezak story uh, about your, uh, the, the yeah. day of your debut. Yeah. Uh, the evening before the debut, uh, my husband and I had been invited to a dinner party by friends of Lotte Lehmann's. And um, Walter Slezak, who was the son of Leo Slezak, the, the Wagnerian tenor, um, was telling us a story about his father's superstitions. And it seems that the father was, was uh, superstitious about nuns. <laughs> he said, if, if his father saw a, a, a nun, it's going to be a good evening. If he saw two, oh, it's going to be really quite special. Okay, so uh, we were driving down uh, Broadway on the evening of my debut, and what do we see on both sides of Broadway? Nuns. <laughs> nuns, I mean, just wall-to-wall -wall nuns. Of course, I thought, well, Walter couldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. So, but but, and our car was the last one to be to be let through before they cordoned it off, and I didn't know what was going on. But okay, we we would let through. We get to the Metropolitan State entrance, and um, uh, the lady who was at the desk then was named Winnie, and Winnie she she said, um, um, "Did you have any trouble? Did you get a chance to see the Pope?" And I thought, the Pope? I mean, not only do I get the nuns, but the Pope as well. Now, you know, it was a fabulous evening. I mean, it was a huge success. I mean, really, I just couldn't believe it. The Pope. But he didn't get to go to your debut. Huh? He didn't get to go. No, I'm sorry about that. Um, so your debut was as Eppoli in Don Carlo. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I thought that we should, we've talked so much about Odon Fatale, I thought we should see it. Oh, okay. Um, this is not from the era of your debut. This is later. This is about 18 years later, 1983. Here at the house? And it's at here at the Met. Yeah. Uh, with James Levine conducting. It had been a performance with uh, Placido Domingo and Mirella Freni mm -hmm. um, and Nicola Guerra. Mm -hmm. So we're going to watch Odon Fatale from 1983, James Levine conducting.
Let's talk a bit about roles and about uh, voice categories. We, you touched on it before mm -hmm. by saying you wanted to use your whole voice. Mm -hmm. um, but you also, I believe, had been getting a lot of conflicting advice about where you should be, what you should be singing, um, and mm -hmm. uh, where you should be in the vocal range. Uh, in addition to Madame Lehmann, you also had a very famous retired tenor, Amon Takatian, mm -hmm. as a voice teacher in the early days, uh, who definitely believed you were soprano. Yeah. Madame Lehman, I believe, thought you were a mezzo-soprano mm -hmm. and should stay there. Um, you've said that your husband at the time also thought that you were a mezzo, mm -hmm. and that this caused some uh, <laughs> friction in the relationship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's not here tonight. <laughs> Neither is Lehman. <laughs> Neither is Lehman for different yeah, reasons, yeah, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he's dead um, too. He's dead too. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't because he thought you were a mess of surprise. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Well, you see, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, but I don't think anybody really understood the whole situation. I tried to explain it. People did not want to hear it. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that Bumbry just wanted to be a soprano, and she just wanted to have that prima donna dressing room. Not true at all. Not true at all. A, a dressing room, a, a performance does not make. Hmm, simple. Uh, but I, I, I was going through a situation, a vocal situation, and you'll find it in my book, which, I, which will be coming out uh, soon, uh, my autobiography. You, you'll find it. It's, all of the medical reports from my doctors in, in Switzerland um, attest to the fact that my vocal cords were such that I was doing damage to them by singing such heavy mezzo-soprano repertoire. And that I, re as a matter of fact, it's the strangest thing. I went into her office, I spoke, good morning, and she says, first of all, your speaking voice is too low. Oh, okay. And uh, I couldn't understand how she could realize that my speaking voice is too low. And, which was, was not like it's like you hear now. I used to really speak quite low. And uh, that's a nice story too, I'll tell you that story. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very good one. And the reason why I spoke so low was because when I was in Basel for this, my first years, and I sang Carmen there. Now, Montserrat Caballé had been in Basel, and she had left in June. I came in September. Now, the second soprano, who would have been the diva, since Montserrat had gone, she was hoping, of course, that she, this is her big chance to be the prima donna. And then came this Bumbry singing Carmen. And I became, of course, the star. I had already sung in Paris. And all right, so, but the thing was, she came to our rehearsal, our first rehearsal, musical rehearsal, and she said, Good morning. So I, soprano, Nicaela. Good morning. <laughs> so I had to better that. So mine was even lower. So, so I continued doing that for about three years, you know? Because <laughs> she was there as long, for as long as I was. <laughs> and, and it was because of that habit 
that pitching my voice down so low that I got into the habit of singing in the wrong, in the wrong place. And the vocal cords, I, I can't explain it all to you because that's, that's not my field, but a, a certain area of the, of the vocal cords were being, were being um, put upon, <laughs> singing, uh, singing and speaking so low. And I remember I had to go to, I had to go to this doctor because my doctor in Lugano did not, did not work with singers. He um, was just a regular public. So I went to this woman in, 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 in Zurich, who was supposed to be the best one in, in all of Switzerland. And she was the one who said that you're talking too low, okay? And then she said, now, now listen, if you really want to save your voice, uh, you have to stop singing for a month and talking for a month. Stop both. No speaking, no talking. You can just write notes. Oh, well, okay. It's her, it's her profession. She must know. So I'll just do what she says, which I did. And the swellings that were on my cords, they were not yet polyps, but the swellings that were on there started to recede. And, uh, but they hadn't gone completely. But, but what I want to say, now back to what you were saying before about these people who knew so much. Um, Nobody knew that I was uh, uh, having problems with, with, uh, with my throat. Nobody. All these wonderful, knowledgeable people did not know uh, that I was doing myself damage by singing Carmen. I mean, I had a, 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 a diet of Carmen's. I'm sure I'm, I have all my, my, my performances I have here. All my performances I have here. And most of them from 1960. 1968 were Carmen's, most of them. So the doctor in Zurich says, okay, Miss Bumbry, if you really want to continue singing, I would suggest that you just put Carmen away until you, until you learn to sing in your, in your proper vocal register. So I said, well, well, Frau Doctor, what does that mean? She said, well, you have to learn a new repertoire, higher repertoire. You must also learn how to speak higher. So that's, it's clear. It's, I mean, anybody who's got a half of a sense realizes what she's talking about. And uh, so I did that. And sure enough, at that same time, I was already receiving um, uh, offers to sing uh, Salome, uh, offers to sing Leonora, and so Gioconda. Uh, and so I assumed, okay, what well, God has sent me these, uh, these, these roles at this time for a reason. So while I was resting, resting my voice and resting my body, I, I decided, okay, let me, just, let me just sort of inspect, just see what, for myself what I can do, what, what I can really do well. And uh, so I chose to sing Salome as my test, thinking that um, because of, of the way it's written, it's not so dangerous for the voice, but at the same time, it's more, it's more parlando. And uh, so I did that. And plus the fact that it was a, a new production in Covent Garden with Sir Georg Scholte and, uh, and um, Andrzej Majewski. 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 <laughs> oh, beautiful costumes and sets. Anyway, how did I get onto that? Well, you gave us a really good lead in. To what? To Salome? To Salome, because oh, we have okay. a little clip.
So in terms of the Met, um, after sometime after the Covent Garden Zalmay, you began singing soprano roles at the Met. And the first one, I believe, was Tosca, which also happened to be something else important in Met history. Yeah, James Levine's um, debut. debut. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you have any idea? What did you think of him the first time you worked with him? And, 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 to, and James was from, I, I'm sure, and I think about it now, it was the, the way he led the orchestra allowed us to sing in the manner that we did. Mm -hmm. um, I, can see, I can see and hear Corelli singing that, um, that voice and the way that Jimmy took, took, took us up there uh, on wings of song, I have to say. I mean, you could hear the orchestra. The orchestra was just rising with us and we were going with them. It was fabulous. It was just fabulous. And I, I remember, you know, I'm a huge fan of, Co of Corelli's, as you all know. And, and to hear that fabulous voice and that orchestra there uh, uh, supporting, and supporting us. James, uh, I, 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 I just cannot tell you. I don't know. I don't know how, what he did that evening. I just know that it was beautifully conducted. Did you know he was 27 or 28 when you, when you started? I knew he was young. I knew yeah. one could see that. Yeah. I, certainly, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, didn't, I didn't give it any, any more thought than that. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed certainly knowledgeable, and that was all you needed. You know, music. I don't either, you're grand, either you're grand or you're not. Are there any roles you regret you didn't do? Regret. I regret that I didn't do Norma here, mm -hmm. and I regret that I didn't do more Jacondas, because Jaconda for me was, was like hand in glove. I mean, it was just just something very very special. Um, no, I, I I can't say that there's anything that I really regret. Otherwise, I'd remember. Yeah. 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 Although I do want to mention that only two years ago. You sang a major role, the Countess, in Pique Dame, mm -hmm, in the Vienna State Opera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, after you had in Russian, in Russian, <laughs> more than fifty years after your opera debut, which I think is an accomplishment, major yes, accomplishment. Yes, yeah. and it's not easy, first of all, to learn a language, a new language, and a language as difficult as Russian at that age. I mean, it, it was really quite a tour de force. Meunier, <laughs> meunier. I mean, what, how can you sing meunier? <laughs> well, I sang it though, didn't I? <laughs> and I got very good, very good reviews and very good comments about my Russian. So I'm happy about that. <clears throat> okay. Well, thank you so much for coming today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to episode eight of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed the interview and think you might be interested in a similar live event, I am happy to announce that there are still remaining tickets for the live musical chairs interview with Lucy Namara on Tuesday, February 23rd, 2016. For more information about this and all of our other programming, visit www.metguild.org. We are very happy to be bringing you this podcast as an entirely free resource for opera lovers, but if you feel you have received value from our programming, we hope you will consider making a donation towards the continuation of our podcast at metguild.org podcast. 
Every little donation helps us achieve our goal of bringing opera education to the widest possible audience, so we thank you in advance for any donation you can give. We'll be back with you next week with a discussion of the plot and themes in Mozart's Die Zauberflöte, or The Magic Flute. All of this ahead of the Met's live in HD encore broadcast on Saturday, December 12, 2015. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.